Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today, we're taking a look at the devastating wildfires in Australia, and stick around after the interview for another startling example of the Trump administration sidelining science with Shreya Dravasula. As life on this planet hurtles forward, Australia is meeting it 16 hours before we do in our recording studio here in Boston. In a world facing climate change, being first has been devastating. When the flames in Australia first sparked in September 2019, they raged for months before people realized that this was unprecedented, even in a country with regular wildfire seasons. By January 2020, the area that had burned was the size of Tennessee, a state that takes about eight hours to drive through end to end. For non-U.S. listeners, that's an area the size of the entire country of Iceland. After burning for months, the bushfires were so bad that firefighters stopped trying to put them out, deciding instead to just contain the flames and protect villages as best they could. The scale of how many homes and livelihoods were lost makes your heart hurt even before you start talking about the impact it had on wildlife. To help me get a handle on what happened, I spoke to Dr. Mel Fitzpatrick, a former Union of Concerned Scientists colleague. Mel grew up experiencing Australia's ecological and cultural heritage firsthand and lives in Tasmania. Being a climate scientist, she has a lot of experience talking about the consequences of failing to act on climate change. Now, she's unfortunately living through it. At the front lines of climate change in Australia, she wants the rest of the world to know that this is what climate inaction looks like. And since last month's wildfires are not something we expect to fully recover from in our lifetime, Mel wants the world to see these devastating losses as a lesson, an example of what the future of climate change holds. Mel shares how this fire came to be so devastating what role climate denial plays in it, and how, even in the suffocating tragedy of it all, she's found reasons to be hopeful. Mel, thanks for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. It's great to talk to you, Colleen. You're about 16 hours ahead of those of us here, in at least in the eastern United States. Um, How's the future looking? It's a little bit heartbreaking. Australia's on fire right now, so we are living through a pretty devastating time over here. And tell me a little bit what it looks like like on the ground there. Australia is dealing with unprecedented heat waves and catastrophic fires, and we have the oldest living culture on the planet. It's a country that is very dry and hot, uh, and we're used to dealing with these kinds of fires. But this year, it's truly different. It really is um, a new regime. Uh, We've supercharged the climate and we're now seeing the consequences. So this is really what happens when you don't act on climate change. And I feel like Australia is really the canary in the coal mine. We're the the harbinger of what will, will come if we don't deal with this on a global scale. So it's, it's quite distressing to, to be watching what's going on. Uh, and certainly people here, communities here, um, are struggling to know how to deal with this. So to, to give a little 
context to the situation. What is the wildfire season there? How how long is it and how does this year compare to previous years? So as I said, Australia is used to fire. We have bushfires every season and normally that season starts at the height of summer. Now the beginning of February is normally the height of summer. The current fires started in September and October last year. So we're seeing the fire season lengthen, uh, which makes it very difficult to prepare. This long-term increase in fire weather is, is across large parts of Australia. And now the fire season is going for months instead of weeks. So it means we have to approach the fires differently. We have to manage them differently. So what sorts of management strategies would you use? In the past, we have done fuel reduction burns before the fire season. That's now becoming much more difficult for the authorities to do. They can't find a good weather window because uh, we're often having much drier and hotter conditions. Uh, so that's what's led really to um, the management issues having to change. What we have now is we have proposals for uh, fire management teams from multiple different states uh, to meet together to discuss how they're going to approach fires. And a lot of that learning is also coming from California. California is dealing with quite similar changes to their fire seasons and we actually cooperate with many different countries around the world to find new ways of dealing with uh, these kind of catastrophic conditions. How would you compare sort of the scale of what's happening in Australia to what we typically see here? The scale of the fires that we're seeing this year are unprecedented. Uh, it's true that we've had Aboriginal cultures living here for millennia dealing with fire, but uh, since European colonisation, these fires are extraordinary. By comparison, they're about 100 times the area of the fires that were in California in 2019. Now, we have major cities that are blanketed in smoke for weeks on end, and the area that's been burning to date is about the size of your state of Tennessee, which is kind of it's hard to get your mind around that, that size. And the other thing that is happening with these fires, they are emitting carbon dioxide. So when you burn carbon-based wood, you produce heat-trapping emissions. And so far, we have emitted about two-thirds of our annual emissions just in these fires over the last few months. They're changing ecosystems and they're turning into what we call megafires. I'm wondering how the average person on the ground is, is feeling about the fires. Uh, there's a sense of powerlessness, and certainly people are grieving and mourning for what's been lost. Like we, we have lost iconic places that have irreplaceable world heritage value. These are places that I grew up loving, and they've disappeared. We've lost... We've lost plants that have been on the earth for thousands of years um, and the sheer scale of the number of animals that have been lost is quite tremendous. So I think first and foremost, people are in a grieving process and there's a lot of anger that Australia has not been uh, a moral leader in the world. We have not stepped up 
to what we should step up to in terms of joining a global effort to reduce emissions. And what I feel is that this is uh, a tipping point for the rest of the world. Uh, This is what climate change looks like and this is a result of climate inaction. We're effectively loading the dice to make this kind of fire event more probable. So all it does is up the odds and makes this kind of event happen more often. So the lesson here is that we really need to tackle this issue now. The financial effects are just as devastating as the physical ones, and it's certainly time that our politicians stop ignoring the science. So Mel, what does the science suggest in terms of what happens next? What can we do? It's always the hardest question, Colleen. (laughs) The science tells us that the main thing we have to do is we have to tackle our addiction to fossil fuels. So that's the root cause of these fires. There are natural drivers that certainly have enhanced the the drying and the warming over our continent, but it's being supercharged by climate change, which has been driven by the blanket of carbon dioxide that you and I are putting into the atmosphere. So what we need to do to solve the problem is to really achieve a sustainable world where we stop using fossil fuel energy and it will require massive changes. We need to get to net zero emissions. We need to find technologies that can pull carbon dioxide out of the air. But we know what the solutions are. There are great things happening, certainly at the local and state level. All around the world, cities are tackling climate change. Uh, Cities are becoming livable and sustainable. What we're missing is action at the international level. So... We need to dramatically reduce emissions. We know how to do it. We just need that political will. Well, last year uh, was the hottest and driest year on record in Australia. We had an annual average temperature that was about three degrees Fahrenheit uh, warmer than normal. And we had rainfall that was 40% below our average. So We've actually, in the last few years, had to introduce a new colour map on our weather map. So our meteorologists said, you know what, the temperatures are becoming so high in Australia that we've run out of colours. So they've added a new colour on the map, and, and this is crazy. This is for temperatures greater than 52 degrees Celsius. That's 122 degrees Fahrenheit. So over the last year we have broken records over and over. In December, we had a a huge heat wave across the central and southeastern part of the country. And Australia broke its all-time temperature record twice, um, one day after the other. So the record was broken for the maximum temperature across the country. And on that day, the entire country had an average temperature above 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Australia is roughly as tall and wide as the United States is. And you can imagine having a temperature of 107 degrees Fahrenheit across the whole of the United States. So we had this very warm, dry weather 
And that actually creates fire conditions that get triggered by lightning. So you have lightning bolts that start a fire and the fire conditions are so extreme now that we've had to add, again, another level of fire index on. About 10 years ago, the fire service said, you know, extreme just isn't high enough anymore. We actually need a fire index called catastrophic. And in December, when we had these very hot temperatures, Sydney was actually, it had for the first time declared a catastrophic fire danger in a major city. So this is very new. It's unprecedented. We've got fires that are creating their own weather. They are called mega fires and they can be hundreds of thousands of acres in size. And what they're doing is they're so large and intense that they can actually create their own weather where the wind, it can throw live embers 20 miles ahead of the front. So that's where a lot of the fires are starting just from these embers. The fire weather creates uh, a particular cloud called a pyrocumulus cloud, and that produces dry lightning. There's also a pyrocumulonimbus cloud, and that's what ignites new fires. And these clouds are dramatically large. You might have seen some photos of them. But we're actually learning a lot more about this fire weather, and people understand that You know, we have very flammable trees. We have uh, eucalyptus trees. They have an oil in them, which is very flammable. But these heat-stoked clouds um, are also creating conditions that are almost impossible for humans to fight. Firefighters uh, are no longer trying to put them out. Uh, They're actually trying to just contain them and to defend towns around the fires Uh, to um, stop the worst part of it, but they know that they will continue to burn for weeks and months. It's not a happy story, is it? We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. The thing that's really striking to me about the story in Australia is just the sheer number of animals that have perished. Some of the current estimates are that we have lost one billion animals. And that's just an extraordinary number to come to terms with. Uh, The areas that are burning, some of these places have never seen fire before. And the animals in the face of fire that's producing its own weather really haven't had any chance to leave. So while we've been defending towns and houses 
some of the areas that have been burning have been home to marsupials, reptiles. One of the things we're not counting in that billion are all the insects that we've lost. So this is part of where our mourning is coming from, is that we've certainly, I guess, had to to deal with something that might be irreversible. Some of these animals may be facing extinction. And certainly ecologically, the ecosystems in those areas may struggle to come back. They're looking at soil that's been burnt. We're looking now at ash uh, running off into rivers. And those things are, are very hard to deal with on a large scale. Really what I'm seeing is, is a lesson for the rest of the world. It's like don't let this happen anywhere else. Uh, we actually need to pull together to make sure that the climate impacts that other countries are facing that we can actually deal with. Australia is, is like a case study in what will happen in other places. What are the health impacts that we'll see from these fires? Um, air quality has decreased. So three of our major cities, uh, Melbourne, Canberra and Sydney, have been dealing with smoke in their air for weeks. Melbourne actually in late January had the worst air quality of any city in the world. Lots of people in the community were suffering, certainly asthma sufferers and the elderly, the young. So that kind of effect is is hard to quantify. But if these fires become something we have every few years at this level, then we'll be dealing with long-term consequences of particulate matter in the air. The other impact is, of course, on things like agriculture. Certainly, if you have lost agricultural land, if you've lost cattle, if you've lost sheep, then we're going to see changes to food prices. So the flow-on effects um, are, are really difficult to quantify at the moment. I'd be interested to see some economists look at this problem and just try and quantify for Australia what we're facing. Is there anything here that you're hopeful about? The thing that gives me hope is that there are thousands and thousands of young people actually taking a lead and asking for change. Now, that hasn't happened in the couple of decades that I've been working on climate change. So that's something that I think is very hopeful. These young people are seeing that their elders have not done what they need to do and they're asking for change. So that's the first thing. Second thing I see is that there is a lot happening at the local and state level. So it doesn't take a national government or even an international agreement um, for there to be action on climate. Um, I live in Tasmania and the city that I live in, Hobart, is already looking at ways to change our lifestyles and make them more sustainable. So I'm certainly hopeful that on the local level we can make changes. And I think one of the positives out of this example in Australia is the world is watching. We're showing them certainly how communities can come together. Can you talk about the climate science denialism in Australia? Uh, There's been a decades-long attempt to... um, manufactured doubt about climate science. 
And this is a familiar tactic. And it's an orchestrated campaign. We're even seeing it during the bushfires. We've seen exaggerated claims in parts of the media and it's really frustrating as a climate scientist to continue to deal with this disinformation. It doesn't matter how many times you counter it with good information, those little seeds of doubt are still out there. Do you feel like things are shifting with a larger numbers of people being outraged about what's happening? I think the government here is feeling the pressure from people to uh, divorce themselves, certainly from climate denial. And I think this will be the catalyst, the tipping point where people won't stand for that any longer. We have the highest per capita emissions of most countries in the world. Uh, And we're one of the largest exporters of coal and it, it just can't continue because I think people understand that these fires have changed the the landscape. They've changed the playing ground, certainly politically. So yes, I hope there will be a lot of pressure on our government to actually come up with some good climate policy and to involve themselves in the international agreements. Mel, if I could give you the power to run the country, what are what are the first three things that you would do? So I think the the quickest way to make an impact is to uh, set up an authority that can enable a transition to zero emissions. So you could call it an energy transition authority. So we have to, on a war footing, actually develop a program to move away from fossil fuels. And that, that includes not exporting coal. So I see that kind of on a war footing. We have done this before. We have been able to retool, certainly during the world wars. Everything was thrown into production for for that event. So if we can throw a lot of resources into making sure that uh, the public have a voice, that communities have a voice, and that we actually take the science seriously. I think we need education. So we need education to counter um, some of the climate denial that we've seen. Uh, And we need to rejoin international efforts and actually become uh, one of the leading nations. We've done this before as well. So when we discovered the ozone hole uh, back in the 1980s, Uh, We came up with an international agreement to phase out chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, and Australia was one of the leading players in that process. So I would like to see this country be an international leader again uh, and show some moral leadership. Well, Mel, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm glad that we could end on a little bit of a hopeful note. I think we can turn our grief and despondency into something positive to, um, to make change where we need it. And now it's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest news from an administration that keeps trying to find reasons to cut food assistance against all evidence that it's good for families and our economy. Ashreya Durvasala has the story. It's well established that income inequality is a real thing in the U.S., and that because of income inequality, many families are struggling to get by, despite gains in the stock market and rich people getting richer. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, 
provides a safety net for people experiencing food insecurity so that they can buy food, which science confirms is necessary to our survival. Science also confirms that SNAP benefits are a good thing for the United States. Rural or urban, working or unemployed or underemployed, single people, seniors, or parents and children, millions of us depend on SNAP for access to food. In 2017, SNAP lifted up more than 3.4 million people out of poverty, nearly half of them children, and reduced food insecurity rates by up to 30%. The year before that, a report by the White House Council of Economic Advisors found evidence linking participation in SNAP to the following list of good stuff. Improved birth weights for babies, better school performance for children, and fewer hospital visits. So with all the benefits to our society that SNAP provides, you'd think the federal government would want to expand it to cover more people and make our country an awesome place where no one goes hungry, right? Yeah, you know where this is going. I'm sorry. Since 2017, the Trump administration has been ignoring the evidence and attempting to cut SNAP benefits wherever they can through issuing rules about their usage and who can access them. There are so many examples that I'm just going to run through three from the past few months. In August 2019, the Department of Homeland Security finalized a rule that would make it harder for immigrants like me to become U.S. citizens if we've ever been enrolled in public benefits such as SNAP. So, if an immigrant family needs to stay here long term and they're going through a tough financial time, they might have to weigh whether their entire future in this country takes precedence over not having enough to eat right now. Very normal stuff that could affect, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, about 2.3 million children who live in households with a foreign-born family member. Moving on, in October 2019, the administration proposed a rule targeting a provision called the Standard Utility Allowance, or SUA. The SUA is an estimate of the average cost of utilities that a household participating in SNAP pays each month. It's used to calculate monthly benefits to ensure that families never have to choose between paying their heating and electric bills or receiving the benefits they need to put food on the table. Currently, states decide how SUAs are calculated and set their own thresholds that make sense for their own populations. Different states have different utilities and some bills will cost more or less depending on where you live, right? But the administration wants to change that, setting a uniform standard SUA. This change would result in a net loss of $4.5 billion in benefits over a period of five years. And some states could stand to lose as much as 20% of their total benefits. The rule isn't finalized yet, which is the only good thing about it. Finally, in December 2019, right before the holidays, the USDA finalized a rule that would cause nearly 700,000 unemployed and underemployed adults to lose SNAP access. Very cool. While these proposals are not all final as of the release of this podcast, their implementation would mean less support for families living with food insecurity across the U.S. and more children living in poverty. When science, to say nothing of common sense and decency, tells us that SNAP benefits are good for families, cutting them without any basis or evidence means that our government is once again sidelining science for its own agenda. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. 
Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Mel Fitzpatrick, sidelining science by Shreya Dravasala, editing by Omari Spears, music and additional editing by Brian Middleton, research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time. <laughs>